But as I had mentioned, we have a guest teacher today. Um, I was supposed to be in Israel with my wife for a couple of weeks, and that fell through. Uh, the night before we were to go, uh, they, we found out they would be closing the borders. But I had uh, planned on being out of the pulpit for two, maybe three weeks as it was, so we decided to follow through with that. And Pastor Dan has uh, been bringing that word faithfully, blessing us as uh, he's a gifted man of God. And today we're going to have another uh, brother pastor from here in Napa. His name is Jess Arns, and he is an associate pastor over at Grace Church right down the street from us, a dear church, a sister church of ours that we partner with in a number of ways. And so uh, his dad was actually one of my professors in seminary over in Vallejo, and um, Tony Arns, he's just a, a legend of a guy. We all love that brother dearly and uh, you know I met his son Jess at a conference here at a pastor's conference at the time Jess was serving as an associate pastor in Georgia so that was kind of an instant Georgia brother now you know so got a, got a good country boy although he is from Northern California originally yeah okay so you know hopefully enough of that southernness rubbed off on him while he was in Georgia to bring that anointing back to uh, Northern California, right? And so, at any rate, we connected at pastors' conferences, and the Lord really put it on his dad's heart to uh, start something that's called the Coalition of Christ-Exalting Churches. So it's a network of uh, church plants, church revitalizations, but it's just like-minded pastors and churches in the Bay Area who have uh, a single-minded, single-hearted passion to exalt Christ and to teach the Word faithfully uh, in the Bay Area. And so watching that, that whole uh, network come together under the leadership of Tony and Jess has been cool. So when I found out Jess was moving here from Georgia, I was just so excited. And so he's been here uh, for several months now, and I'm excited to have him come and uh, share God's word with us today. So uh, let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll welcome the brother up. Father God, we thank you so much for how you care for your church we thank you that you uh, have blessed us to be connected with other churches in Napa and the surrounding areas here with other faithful pastors and preachers that are able to come and minister to us and to share your word with us. What a blessing it is, and we have benefited from many, many godly men who have stepped into this pulpit. And so I'm excited about the word that is going to be shared with us today, and I pray that your spirit would move mightily in our minds and hearts, that Christ would be exalted, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, Lord, and that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified. I thank you for this body of believers here. I thank you for Calvary Napa, and I thank you for the generosity of your people as they give to the cause of the kingdom and the church, as they give faithfully and financially uh, in tithes and offerings. Father, I thank you for those who have given even today, and I pray that you would bless them and that you would bless their gift to you and to your work and that you would multiply that and that you would be able to uh, do more, God, in and through our church and this community and around the world even. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ here that are in this very community gathering right now around the cross and worshiping Jesus and for our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom are uh, persecuted right now and who are suffering for the cause of the gospel and their testimony. Father, we, we lift them up. Father, please strengthen them by your grace, encourage them by your spirit, and use them mightily, God. 
And we pray for those in Kentucky who have suffered under, oh man, these horrible tornadoes and storms that have blown through and devastated the place. Father, I pray that you would surround that community, those various communities, with brothers and sisters who would go in and help and support in many different ways, hands-on, service, financially, whatever the needs may be. I just pray that you would uh, work and provide and uh, bring restoration to, to the people there. Show yourself faithful, and would many come to the saving knowledge of Jesus through this most devastating of times. And so, Father, we lift up this day to you yet again. It's your day. We're here for you. Please be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, brother, come on up. All right. Good morning. Can you hear me? We on? All right. Well, it's a, it's a tremendous blessing to be with you. It's such a, a joy to join with other believers um, in another place that I've never met before knowing automatically that you and I have more in common because of our shared faith in Christ than, than we do with members of our own family who don't know the Lord. You and I, I already know more about what matters to you. I already know, I already know you better because of the shared life in Christ than I do the hearts and souls of people that, that don't love him. And uh, what, a, what a joy it is to see uh, an extended relatives in the family, right? This is great. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know Rob. I, I, I really love this brother, and I look forward to spending more time with him. Uh, in fact, we're hoping to get a pastor's fellowship going here in Napa just to keep each other encouraged. You know, keep praying for your pastors, guys. It's been a, it's been a couple of years. We're all beleaguered. We're all tired, and uh, we're all going through stuff just like, just like you, and, um, and there's just a lot, a lot of weight to that role, and so just pray for your pastors, uh, help them, encourage them, love on them, and uh, just bear up their arms um, as they uh, minister the word among you. Um, but I just I love I love Rob, and have gotten to really enjoy. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful that you're here in town, brother. A like-minded guy here in town. This is great. Um, okay, I was going to preach on First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen on uh, fixing your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I decided to change that just as we're worshiping and praying. I just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the Lord or, or if it's just me, but I've decided that in his sovereignty that this is what I'm going to preach to you today from the book of Revelation, okay? But I'll give you a little snippet of what I was going to preach from 1 Peter 1.13, and it's basically this, okay? We know we have this hope in heaven, right? It's, it's set apart for us. It's, it's fixed. It's reserved, right? We are being protected by the power of God through faith, okay? So we know that that hope is there, but the exhortation in First Peter is to fix your hope completely on what he is going to bring to you in the future. Fix your hope completely on that, okay? And so there's so many other things that we can tend to fix our hope in, so many other things that we, that we want from this life, but the only thing that is sure for the believer is, is that Christ will deliver you safely to your eternal home, right? And you will get there. You will make it. And it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be perfect. It's going to be full of joy. And you will be with one another forever. And imagine being with one another, the people you love, people you love. Imagine them being perfect and unselfish and even beautiful, right? 
and you will be too. And we will enjoy that together in the presence of God forever. So that is the nutshell of what I was going to say uh, and, uh, in, in the message. But I, what I really want to focus on now is the book of Revelation, and we will get there in just a minute. Before we do, um, I just want to just think through this, right? As we have come through all this COVID stuff and are trying to get our feet back under us, it's a good time to look back and evaluate the last, it's basically been two years, almost two years, and evaluate ourselves. How have we handled that time? How have we treated one another? How have we used the time? And what did we demonstrate was most important to us? The decisions that we've made. As we sort of come out of this COVID fog, hopefully we come out of this at some, somehow, in some way, some way, right? How do we need to change? Individually, and then you as a church, how do you need to change? And I just want to challenge you, as I challenged Grace Napa, that we're not trying to get back to normal. We're not trying to get back to normal. No, we are trying to get back to what God has called us to. In fact, it might not be even getting back to it. We might need to do it better than we ever did it before. We might need to do what we did more faithfully. There might be some things that we did well that we need to do better. There might be some things that we should have been doing that we did not do during this time and that we did not do before, individually and as a church. And so as we kind of try to come through this, let's not approach this new season with a sense of relief and comfort and ease, but with a sense of urgency. For the days are evil. The days are evil. And this is the real question I, I want you to consider for yourself right now. Have I seen the church of Jesus Christ, have I considered it to be essential? Is your church essential? The word essential means absolutely necessary, extremely important, fundamental or central to the nature of something. Is your church essential? As you look back, you know, the past couple of years, that, that's been the big question on everyone's mind, right? What's essential? What's an essential worker? What's, what's an essential business? What's, uh, what's our essential activities? Because we were only allowed to do what was deemed essential there for a while, right? And then, of course, we got down to this, this question, is the church essential? And without getting into all the nuances of the arguments that we are all very familiar with, the one thing that we really need to understand here is, is not whether it's essential to you or to me. That's not the real question. And it's not whether it's essential to Gavin Newsom or the health officials or the WHO or whatever. The question is, is it essential to the Lord? That's the real question, right? Is the church essential to the Lord? 
Because in the eyes of the world, it's not, right? This past year, this past couple years have, have proven that, right? Think back to this. As you made your decisions, what proved to be absolutely essential to you in this last couple of years? Was it the church? Was it God's will? Or was it, for so many of us, our job? That was essential. My food, my house, my safety, my reputation, my comfort, my pleasure, my convenience, my sports. So many of us have been tempted to give more weight to those things than to the church. In your thoughts and your desires and your reasoning, you've demonstrated in this past couple of years that what, what you believe is essential, right? And I just want you to consider that. Is what you have decided is essential over the last couple of years, is it in line with what God considers essential? So with that question in mind, think about this. Um, we're going to open up to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and you can go ahead and turn there. And as you do, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Revelation was written by the Apostle John, likely in the mid-90s uh, A.D., and John was one of the original 12 disciples, one of the three in Jesus' inner circle. He was there along with Peter and James. He's the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And from what we can tell from church history, John was the only apostle to not die a martyr's death. They had tried to, uh, they tried to boil him in oil, uh, according to church tradition. It's probably, it's probably an accurate tradition. They had tried to boil him in oil. They weren't successful in killing him, and so they exiled him to this island called Patmos. And just think of John as he is writing this. He has seen not only the crucifixion of his Lord, but he's also witnessed the crucifixion of his, of his closest friends. Peter was crucified, along with Peter's wife, right? He has seen friends of his stoned to death throughout the whole course of his life. I mean, this has been decades long. In Acts 4, John himself was questioned and flogged for preaching the gospel. In Acts 12, his own brother James was killed for his faith by King Herod Agrippa. This was in the early 40s. This was just within a 10 years after Jesus' death. And then one by one, each of the apostles is martyred, along with other friends and acquaintances. And now he's been exiled to Patmos, which is a prison colony and a, a church historian named Tertullian uh, in, around the year 200 A.D. says that the Romans, uh, he, that's where we get the story about John uh, being boiled in oil and was unhurt by it. So now, Revelation 1.9 says this, he's in prison here on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was imprisoned for preaching Christ. And that's the backdrop of Revelation chapter 1. And with that in mind, again, I just want you to think about this. John and all those apostles, all they had to do to preserve their own safety and well-being was to stop preaching Jesus, right? And now, after decades of suffering, this happens. 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Okay, stop right there. John is writing this as an eyewitness, and he states here, I'm just your brother, right? I'm not anyone special. We're going through similar things, the perseverance and tribulation for the kingdom of God. We're sharing in this suffering, and all of us are called to this, and we have this in common. And the Christian life, by the way, is not one of these. It's one of tribulation, if you're going to be faithful, right? And we need to expect that. We live in a world that disregards God, and so that's the way it's going to be, tribulation and suffering. Now, he goes on there in verse 9. He was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So this is a Sunday. And imagine, just put yourself in John's shoes right now. It's a Sunday, and you are in prayer worshiping the Lord. That's what he means by in the Spirit. He was really focused. He wasn't working. He wasn't, he wasn't going for a walk somewhere. He was really focused in prayer. He was focused on worshiping the Lord. And then suddenly, imagine this, this happens I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how startled you would feel. It's behind you, right? This supernatural voice just booms like the sound of many waters, like the sound of a trumpet. That's crazy. Just imagine how you would respond, right? I mean, you would probably just almost fall over out of, out of fear, right? What on earth happened? A train just showed up, right? A cruise missile just landed behind me. Verse 12, so you, you just imagine this. You cower and you turn, and this is what you see. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, okay? Meaning there's a person there, right? So there's someone there that looks like a man of some kind. But he's not an ordinary man. Look what it says. He's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. He's girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is showing he's kind of dressed like a priest right here. Verse 14, his head and his hair were like wool. They were white, like snow. And he's so, this, this is showing he's so pure. He's old, he's wise. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. There's intensity, purity. There's nothing hidden from his sight. His eyes are a flame of fire. Everywhere he looks, there's no shadow where he looks. Wherever his gaze goes, it lights up like the noonday. He exposes everything. And there's nothing sinful or corrupt in him. His voice, it says, was like the sound of many waters... It's overwhelming, it's powerful, like the sound of the ocean waves crashing against the rocks, or like Niagara Falls. It's a rushing, deep, booming voice that just drowns out every other sound. You can't hear anything else but the voice of the one speaking here. In his right hand, it says that he held the seven stars. Later, it says that those are the angels of the seven churches, which could be either the preachers or specific angels given charge to look out for the churches. And it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And that, just, that signifies the power and the precision of everything that comes out of his mouth. It's double-edged. There's no dull surface 
There's no useless part to whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth. He doesn't, everything he says matters, right? As Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We don't need some psychologist who cannot even see the heart to discern what's going on in there. Jesus Christ knows it inside and out, and his word cuts it perfectly, a finer point than any scalpel of any surgeon. Jesus Christ's word dissects you and lays you bare, as it says in verse 13, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead and it will be judged by his word. It will, he'll sift it, right? He will, he will sort things out. He will judge exactly, perfectly, righteously, according to reality, the way things are. And then it says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Again, this is showing power and great glory. Now just think about this. How do you feel when you see this firsthand? Again, give, give, your, give your mind to thinking through this. How would you feel turning around, being startled by this, having no concept, having never seen anything like this? Of course, John was on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it, that had been decades. What's your response? Look at verse 17. This is what it would be. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Have you ever been terrified? Not just startled, terrified. Have you ever experienced terror? Have you ever fainted from fear? I, I personally have not fainted from fear. I'm, I'm 38. I look like I'm 21, right? 38 years, I've never experienced fear like this. But this is what it felt like for John. He has come face to face with something so powerful, so unexpected, so startling, so terrifying that his body loses its strength and he crumples to the ground involuntarily. And he's completely overwhelmed with the sight and the sound of this glorious person. He's, he's, he, he's a dead man, right? And this is the common response throughout scripture you see this all over the place every time people are face to face with the glory of god they fall on their feet because they see both both their physical weakness and their sinfulness and they're exposed to the powerful holy one but this is so awesome this is what the lord does over and over to those that fear him that give him his due that humble themselves before him he said he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. This person seems like such a threat. And no person could defend themselves against such power, right? But rather than threatening you, rather than threatening you, his faithful believer, his child, he puts his hand on you and says, don't be afraid, with that powerful voice. Man, when that powerful voice is for you and not against you, there could be no more comforting 
words than that, right? For those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose, who are his faithful ones, there is nothing to be afraid of. Nothing at all. There's nothing at all that could oppose you. There's nothing at all that could keep you from your heavenly reward. There's nothing at all that could take you out of the hand of this almighty one. There's nothing at all that could, that could harm you without his, without his go-ahead, right? He's the one that stands between you and danger. And if he is for you, who could stand against you? So who is this person? Obviously you know. But look at how he describes himself. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm Jesus, remember me? He gives, there's a whole lot more to who this person is, right? Verse 17, he says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Let's just walk through this, right? The first and the last. He's the, he is the preeminent one. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, verse 5 says. In verse 180, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In Isaiah 41, 4, he says, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Who's talking in those Old Testament passages? Jesus. Yahweh. The great I am. God. Revelation 22, 12 through 16, listen to this. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And those who remain in that state without repentance will be outside of the kingdom and blessing of God, right? But those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, renouncing those things, are brought near to him. And he transforms them from the inside out. And finally, one day, will make them completely blameless and pure in his presence. And they will no longer do the sinful things that they did in their former life, now in, in eternity, they will be gathered in his, under his wings, worshiping him from pure hearts and clean hands that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning how the Lord would install his king to rule forever in righteousness and justice and peace and will protect his people from their enemies forever. That's Jesus. Who is the first and the last? Who is the Alpha and the Omega? It is God, Yahweh, the eternal divine creator, and that is equated with Jesus, 
Jesus Christ, this baby in the manger, is the great I am, the first and the last. Oh, man, I love that. This is Jesus Christ. As Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Doctrine matters. Because if you don't get Jesus right, you don't get salvation right. I could say, I could say, someone come, come to me and say, hey, you know Rob Rainey? Oh, yeah, I know Rob Rainey. He's that, he's that short, pudgy guy with a mustache that, goes down, that works at Kroger, right? Uh, no, that's not, that's not, that's a different Rob Rainey. You're going to show up at the wrong place if you're looking for that Rob Rainey, right? Jesus Christ is not a created being. He's not, he's not a, a high angel, right? He's not, he wasn't a man who became God. He's not the God, he's not the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or of, of the Muslims. He is the eternal God equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit. One God, three different persons, the Trinity. That is who this is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This person standing behind John, who once was in the manger and now has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, is the purpose and point of all of history. It says he's the living one. One four says, him who was who, and who is to come. He's eternal, always has existed, will always exist into the future. He was once dead and now has been raised from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says that this whole thing matters, that Jesus is alive, because if he's not alive, if he has not been resurrected, then your faith is useless and pointless. But he is alive he, he was raised from the grave, and then he was ascended into heaven in front of 500 witnesses. Jesus didn't do miracles in secret the way that the charlatans of today do. He doesn't extend people's legs and make headaches go away. No, he does obvious miracles that are undeniable and out in front of everyone to see. Okay, this is a total side note. People wonder, well, why, you know... Why doesn't Jesus come and talk? Why doesn't he make himself obvious? Look, Egypt, who Israel was enslaved under, was the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Millions of people. He did his miracles in front of millions of people so that everyone may know that he alone is God. 
and then led millions of people out in the wilderness, did miracle after miracle. And, and the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you know this, but when the Ten Commandments were given, it wasn't Moses climbing up by himself and God whispering the Ten Commandments to him and Moses coming down and saying, hey guys, I found these great commandments, we should live by those. No, the Ten Commandments were proclaimed by this booming voice from the mountain to the entire congregation of Israel. That is the foundation that, that act, that whole thing, is the foundation of everything we know from God's sufficient scriptures, right? This is why we trust the scripture. Because it wasn't some guru hiding out in a cave somewhere, coming up with some nice thoughts to share with people. He did it in front of thousands, millions, and in this case, 500 witnesses where Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And most of those people went to their grave proclaiming that this Jesus is Lord. So this is true, right? We don't come to church to escape reality. We come to church to be reminded of reality. So Acts 17 then says this, because he is alive, that means that's a, that's a great comfort to those that believe and a terror to those that do not. Because he says this, in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The proof that God is going to judge the world is that he has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And because he's alive and ascended into heaven, then that means he also will keep his promise to come back and he will set everything right. He is coming again, it says there in our passage. And Revelation 1 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every, every single eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. This man that has, this powerful man that has shown up behind John also has the keys of death and Hades. He's conquered death and hell. He set all who believe in him, he has set them free. And he has set them free from not only sin, but also the bondage of the fear of death. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. If you want to avoid eternal death, you go through Jesus. You want to be made right with God, you go only through Jesus. There is no name under heaven given among men, no other name, by which we must be saved. And so then the, the, the moral of the story comes from Acts 2.10, or I'm sorry, Psalm 2.10. Therefore, O kings of the earth... Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, quickly, quickly kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. All of these arrogant rulers of the world, they think they're gods. They think it's up to them to save the planet. They think it's up to them to decide what's good for everyone. They think that they, that they rule, that they reign, that they're in charge, that they're in control, that they know best, and they arrogate themselves to this lofty position. Jesus Christ will come and terrify all of them. They will bow to him and call him Lord. 
because everything exists for him. It's by him, to him, and for him. Now think about this. Why does Jesus present himself in this way? Why? Think about this. This passage here is the last impression that Jesus wants you to have of him before he comes back. He's no longer the baby in the manger. The humble servant who suffers in silence. That's not Jesus anymore. Nor the bloodied body on the cross. That happened once for all. That doesn't need to happen over and over and over again. No, from now on, Jesus wants, he wants you to think of him in this way. He wants this to be emblazoned on your consciousness. He wants you to imitate his humility as a man. But he wants you to worship him for the reality of his glory. Who he, who he is today. And this is who he is at this moment. He continues in the form of a man. Which is amazing, right? When he took on flesh. He, he continued to be the God-man from that point on, even till now. That's just, that's mind-blowing. So now, think about this. Why does, he, why does he want you to have this image of him in your mind? Why so dramatic? Why so loud? Why so bright and terrifying? Well, of course, he wants you to worship him and recognize his power. But there's more to it than that. There are a handful of times that God shows up this way in the scriptures. And each of them, he doesn't do it just to show off. He's not just doing a fireworks show. Um, he doesn't want you to just go, wow, that's cool. Right? That's, that's not it. Look at, there's, there's a few passages that I want you to, you can write these down. In Exodus 19.9, he says, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud. Okay, this is what I was talking to you about with the Ten Commandments, right? I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. So the Lord wanted the people to trust Moses. And so he's going to, that's what he was going to do. In 19, uh, Exodus 19, 16, he says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning, flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and, every, and a very loud trumpet sound. Okay, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? A loud trumpet sound coming off that mountain, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And then that's where the Ten Commandments comes. And then at the end of chapter 20, verse 18, after the commandments are given, all the people, it says, perceived the thunder and the lightning, the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they spoke to Moses, speak to us yourself we will, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Why does he show up this way? It's because he had something to say. And he wanted 
the people to take it seriously. Isaiah 6, it's the same, where, Moses, where, where Isaiah uh, sees the Lord and his glory in the, in the temple, right? And then he falls on his face, and he says, I'm a dead man. God says, I've forgiven your sin. And then he says, who's going to go preach to these people? And I, Isaiah says, I will. And he says, this is what you need to say. He shows up this way because he wants people to listen. In the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, you guys know the transfiguration. They go up on to the mountain, and Jesus is praying. And his, so it's Peter, James, and John, his inner, John, our John from Revelation, was there. And his face changes. His clothing becomes white and gleaming, and his face is just shining. And then uh, Moses and Elijah show up and are talking with him. And what they're talking about is how he's going to go and be crucified and, and then come back to heaven. And they're talking about this, which is, man, it would have been really interesting to be there. Well, Peter, if you know anything about Peter, he didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. He wanted the glory and skipping the cross, right? Which is also what Satan wanted, right? He wanted to give Jesus, you know, temporary glory and skip the cross, Jesus, right? Because that was... The route that Jesus needed to go was through the cross. Well, Peter wakes up. He knew that Jesus had already told him, i got to go to the cross. i got to go be killed and crucified. He's like, no. So then he sees these people, and he's like, this is Elijah and Moses. The kingdom of God has come. This is great. And so he says, let's make three tabernacles, one for you and Moses and one for Elijah. Stay. The kingdom of God needs to start right here. We can skip all this cross stuff, right? Not realizing what he was saying, in verse 34, while he is saying this, a cloud formed, began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then verse 35, the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. So you see this pattern. God doesn't show up in glory just for fun. He shows up this way so that you will listen to what he has to say. And this, he goes on from here in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen to the seven churches. He's got a message for the seven churches. And in fact, you see this, this phrase repeated through chapter 2 and 3. This is the phrase over and over. You, you guys know the letter to the seven churches, right? The letters to the seven churches. At the beginning of each letter, he calls to their mind this image that has been, that showed up in chapter 1. You know, he says, him who has the sharp two-edged sword, him whose face shines like fire. He's, he's calling their attention back. Remember this? This is where this message is coming from. It's not coming from the pastor. This is coming from Jesus. And then it ends with this phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's repeated in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 17, 29, 3, 6, 13, and 22. And this is the theme throughout Scripture. Who is the one that the Lord will look to? The one who is humble, right? And who trembles at my word. It is right. It is right to tremble at the word of God. That is the point. 
So what's the conclusion all of that? You should listen, <laughs> right? As we, said to begin, as we said at the beginning, we're talking about this question, is the church essential? The real question is, to whom is it essential? And we've just seen the glory of Christ and who he is. And the question, the real question when we ask about these things is not what Gavin Newsom thinks, not what our world thinks, not what the CDC thinks or our local. The real question is, is the church essential to Jesus Christ? Because that is what matters. The truth is, it doesn't matter if it's essential to you. It matters if it's essential to him. We will stand before this Jesus and give an account of ourselves. And he's not left us in dark. Okay, He has not left us to go climb up on a mountain and just wait for the wind to tell us what to do. He's given us his word. I mean, we, it's been preserved through the centuries. We have 66 books of Jesus communicating to us how to please him, how to do the things that honor him, what matters to him. We don't need to sit here and just, we don't just wait for an oppression to come over you. It's by the careful interpretation and application of his word, the Bible, and he's shown us the powerful glory that, that is his this morning so that you'll be careful to fear him and to listen to him. And so the question is, is the church essential to Jesus? To answer that, just go back to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll, at the beginning, I think it's verse 6. This is what Jesus did for his church. Look at this. The one who is in control of all things. Verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who was, who, what, who is, and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits, that's just a, a way of communicating the, the Holy Spirit who is, who is present everywhere. Verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. So think of this. The one who controls all things, rules all things, declares the end from the beginning. Nothing will thwart his will. He is more important than any other being in the whole universe. And he loves us. He loves us. <laughs> That's Who is the us? Well, it's the same people that he's made to be a kingdom and priests, right? Believers. He has, a, he has a certain love for the world, but he especially loves his chosen ones. His believers, the ones that have called him Lord and Savior, have believed his words and have followed him. He has a deep, deep, eternal love for you and me. What has he done for us? He has released us from our sins. 
And look at what it cost him. His own blood. So this powerful one became a baby. Lived in obscurity for 30 years. 30 years. Knowing that he was the Lord of all creation. Being treated like any normal human would for those 30 years. Enduring the effects of Adam's curse. Right? Enduring the death of people that he loved, enduring the conflicts, uh, the selfishness, though he never sinned himself. But he then, for three years, enters this exhausting ministry where self-centered people are coming to him for healing and for, for, to break the bread, to see the miracles, right? And none of them understand exactly what he's doing. Can you imagine the most brilliant being in all of history dealing with people like us and yet dealing with us without sinning in return? And then he goes to Gethsemane. And all through his life, as I said before, Jesus' greatest temptation was to avoid the cross. That was Satan's temptations. Remember, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just bow before me. Those kingdoms of the earth were already promised to Jesus. But he had to go through the cross to get him. Satan is saying, hey, I can give him to you without the cross. Jesus' his whole life knows that cross is coming. He sees it on the horizon, getting closer and closer. The most horrific death and the wrath of God was coming for him his whole life. Can you imagine if that was you? The wrath of God is coming for you. You can't avoid it. Can you imagine that? He saw it coming. In fact, he willingly laid his life down. And the most, you, you, we have to understand this. The most difficult thing that God ever had to do was die for you. He, he went to Gethsemane. And he says, and he falls on his face three different times, crying out, it says. Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's, he is, he's distraught. He's in, he's in distress. He's sweating because he's so, uh, he, he knows how horrible this is going to be. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let it pass from me. Of course, the moral of the story is there was no other way for you to be saved and for the Father to be glorified by sinful people, for God to be shown to be righteous in not judging every sinner in hell. And giving and allowing sinners to enjoy anything in life, for God to be shown to be righteous, Jesus had to die. And then he gets up, not my will, but your will be done. He gets up, here comes Judas, the kiss on the cheek, the, the insults. They said, you know, uh, they come to get him, and Peter, again, not wanting, he wanting to fight, thinking like do, we do, takes a swing at a guy, cuts off his ear. Jesus says, picks up that ear, puts it back, and says, Peter, no. Don't you know I could call, what was it, seven legions of angels? That's around 70,000 angels. It's like, it's like this. Jesus knows that the angels are just right there. And the angels, their Lord, who they worship with their whole being, is right there being mistreated by these wicked men. And they're watching this whole thing happen. They're just, re they're ready. You remember in the Old Testament, 
there was, it took one angel to wipe out 185,000 troops in one night. One angel. Jesus said, I could call 70 of those guys if I wanted them. The Father would, would do it right now. Those angels, are you could just imagine them being like, all right, you just give me the word, God. I'll wipe these suckers out. You know? Seriously. Because you're messing with my Lord. Right? In a righteous anger, they're like, I'm gonna take the, we'll take these guys out. You just tell me when. And Jesus says, no Peter, no Michael the archangel, stay back. I need to lay my life down. And on the cross, he's, he lays his life down. He's, I mean, in agony while these puny little Pharisees are mocking him, while these criminals on either side are mocking him. He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. The guy on his right, the guy finally sees the light, sees this is the Savior. He says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. Jesus went through that for the church. How essential is the church to Jesus? He laid down his own life. But it's not only that. All of history all of history, every single thing that has happened has been controlled by Jesus in order to set in motion history so that he would be born at the proper time, so that the gospel would go forth on those Roman roads all over the place, so that, so that Greek would be spoken all over the, the known world, so that the gospel would speed its way across the globe, right? By the end of the first century, it made it to India. But by, the, by the end of the second century, some think it made it all the way to Japan. Christians being gathered everywhere. And throughout all of history, what people meant for evil, God meant for good. And it says that he is working all things for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And what is that good that they would all those he has called, they'd be justified and, and then conformed to the image of the Son. So all of history, every single thing, he is working things out, putting up with sinful people so that his gospel will make it because he's unwilling for his chosen ones to perish. And it will make its way to every single last one of them. And when the last one is saved, then it's time to gather them all in at once. Everything in history is happening for the sake of the church because that is what the most important person in the universe loves more than anything is his church and will gather them together and they will worship him. And you realize that the church, not the building, not the organization, but every person who believes in him and has been saved, the church is the only thing that will survive from this world into the new heavens and the new earth. You realize that? The church is like those redwood trees when the fires go through. Everything else is torched, but that redwood tree stands, stands strong. The church is the only thing, the only thing that will make it from this world to the next. How essential is the church? It is more essential than oxygen. It is more essential than every kingdom, every king, every institution, 
every organization, every other thing in the history of the world combined, the church of Jesus Christ is more essential than anything. How essential is it to you? And that's why Jesus, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Is because that was the birth of Jesus fulfilling that hope, that promise. To bring many sons to glory. So I got to stop because I could go all day. Let's, let's pray. And let's ask that the Lord would give us a greater value for Jesus and for the things that Jesus loves and particularly for his church. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as people that desperately need to be reminded of the reality of what you're doing throughout history, what what matters to you, Lord. Please, Lord, help us to lay aside sin and And all that would hinder us in following Jesus, help us to lay aside the fears, Lord, that keep us from obeying him. Lord, we're, we're so thankful that we've been made right with you in spite of our sin, that we've been cleansed, that we've been washed, that we've been forgiven, and that you've given us a heart to follow you, Lord. Energize your people now today. May they see, may they see each other with the same love that you have for them, Lord, and value one another the way that Jesus did where he has done everything for his people. And so, Lord, as we love one another the way Jesus did, help us to shine the light of the gospel fearlessly, boldly, and lovingly into this community and around the world, wherever you take us. And then, Lord, May you gather us together soon, all together, having perfected your church, Lord, where we can worship you and sing your praises and your glory for the first time fully grasping what it is you have done for us. And so, Lord, help us today. And may, may, this, may this vision of who you are stick with us. May we not forget. We ask for your sake and for the joy of all people.